Welcome to the ERG podcast called Learn with ERG. We believe that sharing our stories is an important form of professional and personal growth. What we know and what we've learned along the way helps us and others become our best selves. In this series, we are going to highlight stories of staying true to yourself and being courageous. Our stories will focus on people who had the courage to stick to what they know was right and stay true to their core values in the process. On today's Learn with ERG podcast, we will talk to Calvin Freeman. Calvin is the current principal of Thomasville High School in Thomasville, North Carolina. Calvin is an experienced teacher, coach, and school administrator. He has worked in elementary, middle, and high schools across rural and urban districts. Calvin is a fierce advocate of education for all students, and when I met him, he was an assistant principal. ERG had been hired to work in his building to support literacy. Calvin made a point to attend every planning meeting and grade level workshop that was possible. As a former history teacher, he knew the value of learning about literacy as an administrator, and he wanted to learn best practices. He would not hesitate to ask questions and take notes during our conversations. Calvin truly models lifelong learning for his staff and his students. I thought it would be fun to let our listeners hear some of his story today. Let's give him a call. Hi, Calvin. Hey, Alice. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us today on our ERG podcast. Absolutely. I'm delighted to do so. So since we are not in the same location, can you tell us where we are talking to you from? Uh, I am talking to you from my office at Thomasville High School in Thomasville, North Carolina. Oh, great. Great. Well, thank you for taking time out of your busy day um, to do this today. You and I have known each other for many years. And over those years, we have had a lot of conversations about big ideas in education and also small details about um, the nuances of instruction and teaching and learning. And I always love talking with you um, since you're so committed to education for all students and you are never afraid to ask really hard questions and wrestle with complicated answers. So I was hoping today as part of our podcast, ERG wants to grow all learners. And as part of storytelling, we would love to hear from you a time that you had to stick to your core values, um, maybe something that was right, even though it was very hard. Could you talk about a time or something like that with us today? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think I have a couple of examples, Alice. Um, right. And um, one from, you know, years ago, um, when I was um, teaching and one from my um, recent stint at um, my school over in Guilford County. Um, 
you know, like a few years back, uh, probably more than 10 years ago now, I heard a speaker um, speak and um, he was um, the president at, um, I think it was University of Maryland at Baltimore College, something to that effect. Uh huh. And his theme was like, you don't have to be rich to be brilliant. And, you know, I kind of grabbed onto that and like held that um, as part of the foundation for um, my core values, because like, you know, I didn't grow up rich and um, but but by no means do I think I'm brilliant either. Um, <laughs> but I didn't grow up rich. And many of the places that I've worked, um, you know, hadn't been places of affluence. Right. And so as I think about those places and like the core values that I took um, to those places when I worked there, the whole idea of, you know, you don't have to be rich, but you have to be passionate. You don't have to be rich, but you have to put in hard work. Um, you don't have to be rich, but you have to have courage or whatever. And, you know, um, when you're passionate about something, there's no such thing as work. Um, and so, but then when it comes to the efforts that you put in, um, you always work to put in your best efforts. And, you know, with courage, it might not always be easy. So I was a high school teacher at Durham School of the Arts in Durham, and I was a history teacher. And, you know, I was teaching world history. I was teaching civics. Um, we had AP US, regular US, and psychology. And, you know, I was like, hey, I'm in Durham, and our students, they need to know a little bit more about themselves, about who they are and how this history is relevant in their lives. And I didn't want it to be um, just about um, one group of people or anything to that effect. And I went through, um, started inquiring about the creation of a class that I called Minority Studies. And like no one had put anything together at the time and um, and it was like, hey, um, you know, we could create this offering, but you would have to be the creator of the class. And, you know, not thinking anything of it, I went through and I created that class um, for seniors only. And I fashioned it um, behind a um, entry level like college class. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now, like we are talking about like or in the headlines it's like the Washington Redskins changing their name or whatever mm -hmm. you know in my minority studies class back in 2005-2006 um, we were having those conversations you know 15-16 years ago and it gave them an opportunity to um, you know really reflect on the history it gave them an opportunity to um, see how the history was relevant in their lives. And, you know, at the time um, I started, I probably had 12 kids in that class. Um, but by the time I left Durham, I had um, 
huge classes, like 25 to 30 kids. And then it um, flowed out of Durham School of the Arts. And um, there was a pretty um, good teacher over at Jordan High School who took it up and continued it. And it is still being offered in Durham today, although they changed the name from minority studies to multicultural studies. Mm-hmm. And oh, I just think about that as a time where, um, where we talk about being true to values. It's the whole idea that you don't have to devalue anyone and there's a place for everyone in every classroom. And it is how do you draw um, kids into being authentically engaged in the classroom. And, um, you know, I think I was able to do that through like the creation of minority studies. And, um, you know, I I never thought about that um, previously until like, you know, we're going through these times right now. I was like, man, these are things that um, I had kids talking about like 15, 16 years ago or whatever. Right. Right. So if there were people listening right now that were sort of thinking along those same lines, that there was something missing in the their current situation and they're building um, possibly high school teachers. When you said you created that class, could you talk us through just a couple tips of how, how do you get started with that? Did you just ha- know a lot and start typing it up in a file like tell us what how what you suggest well the interesting thing is i didn't know anything except what <laughs> i do it's how i mean right and, and so i'm like hey like um how do i create this and i went to the um you know like uh i guess the curriculum head for social studies in Durham at the time and told her my idea. And she's like, well, Mr. Freeman, um, this summer, I'll give you a thousand dollars to create that class. And I had to create a syllabus and, um, you know, I created a book list. I created activities and all of that um, for a summer and like a thousand bucks. I was like, wow, I'm getting paid to do this. Right. <laughs> you know, like you know, if I knew what I know now, I'm like, no, I'm gonna charge you a little more than that. <laughs> um, and so, and I, like I said, and I didn't know anything, and I just started like um, with uh, simple research, seeing what colleges and universities were doing, and I would take pieces from a syllabus here, a piece from a syllabus there, and till I fashioned the syllabus for um, that class. And those kids, we read tremendous books um, in a high school class. We read Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozal. We read like, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by like Beverly Tatum. Our textbook was um, Ronald Takaki's A Different Mirror, like, you know, a different presentation of history. We read like Lakota Woman. We read Malcolm X. And I had kids authentically engaged in like um, being a part of that. And it wasn't about anything I knew um, because I didn't know anything. But it was 
how can we put this together and make it meaningful and um, really get kids to invest in it? And I think um, there was a level of success in doing so. Well, I, I really think that um, your honesty about it wasn't that you were an expert in this area. It was almost as if you were learning alongside them. You just knew how important this was, that that's probably part of the power behind what you created. Absolutely. And I, and I think like um, having a group of seniors, like um, they came to know and understand that and understood that as well. Um, and, you know, when we talk about what minority studies or multicultural studies, and we're talking about um, the relevance of history, it wasn't something that was dead. It was organic history. It is things that we're living like um, today, and they lived at the time. Right. Uh, you now, I remember one of my assignments was, um, you know, kids had to determine what the best city um, for them to live in, what was going to be the best city for them to live in. And, you know, initially they would just start and they would name a city. And um, I remember one of the students chose Philadelphia. Um, but they had, I gave them a rubric that talked about, you know, um, median household income, like college level demographics, like all of the demographics that you um, get from um, life experiences in a particular city. And I remember her project came back and she no longer called it Philadelphia, she actually called it Killadelphia. Wow. And like what Philadelphia was going through in terms of violence and crime and um, how it related to black people at that time. And, and so, you know, just the, the renaming of the city in her project, you know, that was enough for me to understand. There was my assessment right sure, there. Absolutely. Like you, that yeah. piece of student thinking led you um, or gave you plenty of evidence to, to realize what she gained from the experience. Absolutely. And, you know, and it, and it was just the investing of like enough time and enough energy and nurturing, um, nurturing curiosity, nurturing relationships that allow kids to do that. And, you know, I think that's what learning is all about. And that doesn't require brilliance, Alice. That's just like, you know, that's where I go back to those core values of like passion and putting in the work and just having the courage to see the work through, you know? Right. Um, with your class, one last question on that. Um, who, what type of student could be successful in a class like that? Every student. So I, um, I don't have to be just the traditional four-year college-bound kid, and I don't have to be a child of color necessarily to be successful in that class. So let me tell you about um, the history department at Durham School of the Arts. I'm really hoping that is still the same. Um, you know, they have fabulous leadership under um, Mr. David Hawks, and I work with, um, with Mr. Hawks and he's still one of my mentors. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that he allowed us to do as a history department was we 
got rid of tracking in the history department. Mm -hmm. Only track was AP um, at the time. So we got rid of regular and we got rid of honors. And we decided that we were going to teach all history classes from honors. Every student that was in the history class could get the extra quality point. And um, and so in like the creation of minority studies, it was, no, you don't have to be college bound. You don't have to be. It is, hey, come take this class. Just come be a part of it. Um, it's going to be an enriching experience and everybody's going to experience success. And, you know, when when we peel back the layers of like what we were thinking, um, it it allowed us to see like what education truly is. It doesn't have to be scripted. It doesn't have to be packaged in any nice curriculum or anything. I, again, I go back to the authenticity of it and it allowed kids to be successful. Um, and again, it was reading, it was writing, it's a whole lot of thinking, it's a whole lot of talking and expression. And, you know, and all kids um, found that they were successful in that class. Right. And the, the relevancy of the topic um, increases engagement with kids. We know this. And I love that the mechanism for learning was reading, writing, thinking, and talking. And um, those are true avenues for kids, for all kids and for all students to learn because then that's how they access the content. It's not that you were teaching a literacy class and, oh, by the way, let's throw in this, you know, book of the the day or whatever. And, you know, it was true, authentic, relevant questions about what was the real history. And that's what drove it, which is um, how you obviously advance the learning in kids. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Well, and you know, like, um, you know, I just think of the influence that, uh, um, that ERG has had on me, you know, um, like you said, we've been working we've known each other for a while and worked together for a while now mm -hmm. and everywhere i go i take hey we're going to rewrite think and talk in every class <laughs> every and well thank goodness thank goodness there's people like you out there doing it well like you know it, it's it, it's one of the things that it, it challenges folks and i keep asking like how do we make um teaching and learning like so hard because it really is hard but we have to stay true to that like you know we're going to teach kids to read we're going to write we're going to kids are going to be able to think they're going to be able to express themselves and all of that right hey hey alice um you know i'd be remiss i do have to get to my second um example <laughs> okay so tell us about your second example Hey, my, my second example, Alice, is one that, you know, is, is just um, tremendous um, to me in its meaning because, you know, um, math one is still considered um, a gatekeeper. 
and you know i was a, a middle school principal over at guilford county at the hairston middle school and when i got there alice i had 22 students enrolled in math one class okay so give us some context for the listeners that are not middle school teachers is that a lot or a little bit um that is um very little comparatively speaking um, when you talk about like the size of Guilford County schools um, you know with 126 schools um, you know I think uh, 12 to 14 middle schools and the number of high schools but if a student is not getting math one um, by the time they're in the eighth grade um, that student actually starts high school uh, significantly behind their peers that have had math one. And then it creates that pathway of math that leads to um, higher education. And that's what I mean by math one being a gatekeeper. Right. And so, of course, in certain places, um, you know, you have to turn kids away from math one. Because uh, parents want them in math one, but like their scores, their recommendations, um, their past performance um, hadn't necessarily merited, if if that's proper, hadn't necessarily merited them being in math one, and you have to turn kids away. But at the Hairston, you know, if we were following the policies that were set um, by the district we will continue to have 20 to 22 kids in math one. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it came a point where I just simply said that we're not going to do that. It is, we're going to take teacher recommendations. We're going to take um, kids that have threes or better and some kids that have a two um, in, they, in math seven, and we're going to put them in math one. And um, for two of my four years at the Hairston, um, following that model, um, we had a hundred percent proficiency in math one. Wow! And we and we moved twenty two kids to. By the time I left at the end of um, my fourth year, we had uh, approximately sixty kids in math one. And we had 24 kids in a section of math, too. And it was like, no, I mean, you know, we have these guidelines for math placement in place. But those guidelines don't apply to what's happening at Hairston Middle School. Right. And as long as we shut our kids out, we're going to continually um, add to that gap of opportunity, the opportunity gap um, that has been created uh, mainly through affluence and opportunity. You know, that's why it's called the opportunity gap. <laughs> and it's the whole idea of like, you don't have to be rich to be brilliant. Right. It is, you know, kids, kids can rise to the occasions and we have to put them in opportunities to show their brilliance and right. We have to go back to showing our passion. We have to put in the hard work. I had a hard working group of math teachers over there. Um, uh, Ms. Watts, Ms. Porter, like they were putting in the work. And, you know, I remember one time we, 
we changed the curriculum and the assistant superintendent at the time of curriculum came over and I got chastised for um, moving the sequence around because my teacher thought it was great to move the sequence based on what kids were coming from. And we got chastised about that. And, um, but then the next year, the curriculum was rewritten with those changes in place. And right, it's just, again, like having that courage and saying it might not be easy, mm-hmm. but we'll do this for kids because it's going to put them in the best light, the best situation and, you know, open that whole idea of opportunity to get closer to equity. And, you know, like, I don't even like that word anymore, Alice. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just think it's a euphemism. Right. Um, because when we really look at equity, that's when we start to break down, like, um, some of these things that we're addressing now that are um, highly systemic. And, but like, you know, but moving um, 22 kids to like um, over 80 kids in math one, math two, that was in, in the school that we were, that was, um, you know, that's just one of my um, moments that I'm always going to hold on to. And it's very courageous um, that essentially what you did was you created a, a, pipeline and an avenue for students that had you not stood in what you believed they would have been in a different pipeline and um, the opportunities afforded them long after they were gone out of your school would have been different. I wasn't rich. Um, There were opportunities that I wasn't privy to and for any of those and that's where we have to stand in the gap for the kids that we currently represent or that we currently lead. And again, um, if we align our decisions and the work to our beliefs, uh, I think that is the starting point. Right. And at, point, and at no point do you have to be um, contentious. Um, it is just like, hey, say what you mean, mean what you say and let the work be the work. It is going to be completely objective, but the subjectivity is going to come through um, in the passion that we have for the work. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like if there is a principal that's listening or even assistant principal or teacher that staying focused on what you believe and know to be right is really how you stand your ground. Yes, absolutely. Well, Calvin, it has been um, a pleasure talking with you today. And I have stolen a little procedure to wrap up podcasts from Oprah and from Brene Brown. And it's just a little quick round of questions to wrap us up. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions and um, you're just going to answer them for us. Okay. Okay. Courage is. Uh, standing your ground for what's right, even when it's not popular. Exactly. Um, if you feel yourself sort of losing sight of your values, you might be off center. What is one thing you do to get yourself back on track? 
go home. Oh, I love that. When I talk about go home, I'm talking about go to Whiteville, North Carolina and ride the streets that I grew up on. And that is absolutely the truth. And it has been an honor and a privilege um, to be connected with you all these years. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. And we will talk to you soon. Hey, when I talked about gratitude and the collection of people, ERG is definitely included in that. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. It's so sweet. All right. All right. Have a good day. All right. Thanks, Alice. Okay. Bye. Bye now. You've been listening to the Education Resource Group podcast called Learn with ERG. I'm Alice Oakley, and you can find more resources and information about this podcast and professional development at www.myedresource.com. Thanks for listening and keep growing.